Get ahead of the postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Hello and welcome to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. This week, our guest is the much-talked-about new governor of Pennsylvania, Josh Shapiro. Now remember, we love taking your questions, so write into politicswarroom at gmail.com or send a tweet to at Politicon for next week's show. Now we'll get to as many as we can, but don't forget to tell us where you're from. Please check out the links to our sponsors, Henson Shaving and Lomi, in our episode show notes. We thank you for supporting these sponsors that helps make this podcast happen. Please tell your friends about us and remind them to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. Hey, James, we have a great guest with whom I share a couple things in common. I grew up on Philadelphia's main line. So did he. My dad was a pediatrician, so was his. Alas, that's where it ends. He is the highly praised <laughs> governor of Pennsylvania, and I'm an old hack doing a podcast with another old-timer. Governor Josh Shapiro, we are so pleased to have you on this program. And after only four months, the Philadelphia Inquirer's writing that leaders of both party parties describe you as one of the most qualified and politically savvy governors the state has ever had. But Republicans control the, the, the state Senate. You only have a one-vote margin in the House. In this polarized environment, how long can this honeymoon last? Well, first off, I'm hoping by the end of this podcast, you and I agree on more than just the fact that we grew up in the same area and our pops were both pediatricians. I, I bet we can. And um, I would just say I, I don't think this is a honeymoon. I think this is the reality of our politics in Pennsylvania today. We're the only state in the nation with a uh, full-time legislature that is divided, right? So we got a Republican Senate, Democratic House, Democratic governor. And I think what we're doing here is we're actually showing the way on how we can, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this on your podcast, but get shit done, right? Have common James sense. James will be shocked, but you're allowed to say it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, common sense solutions to real problems that impact people every day. That's what I'm focused on, whether it was signing my first bill into law yesterday or two days ago that was sponsored by the Republican leader in the Senate that's going to eliminate all costs for breast cancer screenings and um, other things related to preventing breast cancer to the work we're doing to you know open up the doors of opportunity more people. We're trying to actually bring people together and get things done. I think that's the Pennsylvania way. I don't think it's a honeymoon. I think it's people embracing the new reality here in the Commonwealth. Governor, I think we agree on a lot. I looked at uh, at your budget proposals, more money for education, early child uh, care, uh, and uh, mental health tax breaks for cops, teachers, and nurses. I think all that is good. But I noticed a number of Republican leaders yelled about it being fiscally irresponsible. Uh, can you bring them around on this one? Yeah, we can. Look, they got to say what they got to say, you know, to, to talk to their folks. I understand how politics works. But um, if you actually want to get into the weeds, um, we've got this thing in Pennsylvania called the Independent Fiscal Office. It is sort of this notoriously group of conservative um, economists that score all these things. And my budget is $3 billion 
more fiscally conservative than even what they want. So no one's going to beat me on fiscal conservatism here. I think it's a matter of everybody kind of doing the posturing they got to do before we get to the final negotiations. I'm, I'm super confident we're not only going to pass a budget, it will be a bipartisan budget and one that Republicans and Democrats alike feel like delivers for their constituents. That'd be great. Let me ask you about another um, issue of voting. It was a massive controversy in the Keystone State a couple of years ago. Where Republicans making lots of false charges uh, about fraud. Uh, I think one county even threatened not to turn in uh, its election results. You have appointed a Republican, a Philadelphia Republican, Al Schmidt, and who really would be in charge of voting supervision. Do you anticipate this is going to be a settled issue, or will they keep doing this stuff? You know, it, it depends, Al. And let me kind of take a half step back in order to answer your question looking forward. And I served as the Commonwealth's Attorney General uh, during the 2020 election. I was in court multiple times defending um, the will of the people, defending their right to vote. I was sued by um, the Attorney General of Texas to try and do away uh, with our electoral votes. We were sued routinely by the pre former president and his enablers. And by the way, Alan and James, we won every single time and the will of the people was protected. And during that time, I was really struck um, by local election officials that just simply did the right thing. Republicans and Democrats who just made sure that the votes were honestly and fairly counted in their jurisdictions. And one of the people that caught my attention was the Republican we call them city commissioners. They're the people that run the elections in the various jurisdictions. The Republican city commissioner in Philadelphia, Al Schmidt, who just stepped up and did the right thing in the face of unrelenting pressure from the former president um, and his enablers. And so I thought it was critically important that I appoint Al, a Republican, to be my secretary of state, lead our efforts to have integrity in our elections process, and show that we can do this in really a nonpartisan way. There shouldn't be a partisan way to count the votes. You can have all the partisanship in the world when it comes to competing for those votes, right? That's what our elections are. When it comes time to counting those votes, respecting the will of the people, that is not a partisan thing. And I think Al's going to do an extraordinary job for us. And he's a reason why um, we had a free and fair, safe and secure election in 2020. James Carville. Uh, Governor, I'll just make a statement and then we'll get to Q&A. The Harvard Business School, they teach case studies of companies. If they ever do case studies of political campaigns, number one on that list from my vantage point would be your gubernatorial campaign in 2020, 2022. It, it, it was, from where I sit, the best run, most strategically smart, aggressive uh, statewide political campaign I've seen in a long time. So congratulations to you and your team. That means but, a lot coming from you, man. You you know what you're doing, uh, well, both here in Pennsylvania and nationally. So I, thank you, man. That means a I, lot. I, like Justice Potter Stewart says, I can't define pornography, but I know it when I, I see it. When I, I see it. a great campaign. <laughs> I know it when I see it. So on politics, and uh, you know, I've been around Pennsylvania politics for a while, and uh, my friend Senator Casey's up for re-election in 2024, and, you know, it's a, a tight seat. Uh, will you give your assessment of where it stands and how do you think this could play out? I think Bob is really well positioned. Um, he's a dear friend. I'm going to go to the mat for him and do whatever he needs to be successful here. I'm thrilled he's running for re-election, um, and I'm thrilled that he's going to have the opportunity, God willing, to continue to serve us in the Senate because he's someone that, um, like me, 
travels around this Commonwealth, goes to areas that are often forgotten. I think we both took a page out of his old man's playbook, um, former Governor Casey, who showed up everywhere. It's really important that, um, that you do that. And he's delivered. I think it's going to be important for him to explain what he's delivered, because I think oftentimes there's this incredible disconnect between the work they do in D.C. and how it actually improves people's lives back here, um, you know, in, in, in the real world. And so I think it's going to be important for him to, to distill that down and explain it. He's got a great record to run on, um, and I'll be doing everything I can to help him get reelected. So, Governor, in preparation for this interview, yesterday I talked to my friend Jim Brown, who's on the Hershey board, and he said that uh, your administration and the Hershey people are doing some exciting initiatives in the area of child, early childhood learning. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Hershey Trust is sitting on about, you know, $15, $16 billion. That's a B, guys, B, billion dollars that um, they're supposed to be using to help educate children. And they can't possibly do it just by um, educating them through the, the Hershey School, because Milton Hershey School, because there's just way too much money. So as Attorney General, I actually oversaw that um, as, as a public charity, and I challenged them to do more. I challenge them to meet a need in our Commonwealth, which is early childhood education. And they're putting in damn near a billion dollars in um, early childhood education, pre-K, to help give kids who otherwise wouldn't have a shot a leg up in our society. And so I couldn't be more grateful to Jim for his leadership and the board at Hershey. They're doing a great job. And I think they're going to be a model, not just for the Commonwealth, but for the whole country. Uh, so, Governor, you very famously ran a, a, a tough on crime campaign. You had a tough on crime record as attorney general. And this is the area that I think Democrats have been by and large deficient in in many places. What, what are we doing to try to help Philadelphia address its, its crime problem, which, to be frankly, is more than we would like. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think the, the level of crime we're seeing in, in Philly, and by the way, not just Philly, there are other communities as well right. that are dealing with this, James. Um, it, it is unacceptable. I think it starts by saying we're not going to accept this. So I put forth a kind of a multi-pronged plan to address it. Uh, number one, hiring more police. Um, my budget funds um, hiring four new cadet classes for the Pennsylvania State Police, some of which will be deployed to Philadelphia. Um, I've proposed, I may be the first in the nation um, that I'm aware of, uh, proposed a up to $2,500 tax credit back in the pockets of new cops who agree to get certified here in Pennsylvania. So for at least the next three years, that's 7,500 bucks back in your pocket to make clear that we support you and we want you here. We obviously wanna make sure that they're well-resourced and well-trained um, and come from the communities that they're there to police. I think that's an important part of this. Um, policing alone is not going to address crime, though. We want to invest more in um, community violence prevention programs. We want to make sure that there is um, quality education, economic opportunities in these communities and connect the dots, the very real dots, between high levels of poverty and high levels of crime. So I think you've got to come at this in a multi-pronged way. Anyone who tells you it's only policing that's going to solve the problem, they're lying to you. And anyone who tells you they want to defund police and just fund these other initiatives and that's the way to address crime, they're lying to you as well. We, it's both and, and we've got to have the courage to stand up and be for both. And that's the approach I've taken throughout my career and the approach I'm taking as governor. And the good news is the, the things I've proposed are around this area 
have been met with bipartisan support. We haven't passed our budget yet, but I'm, I'm very hopeful that you'll see a real plus up for um, public safety uh, across the board. Thank you, Al. Uh, Governor, uh, James asked you about uh, Bob Casey, who you said is in, in, in really good uh, shape. Let me, you know, B Biden beat Trump last time by pretty, pretty close, 80,000 votes, about 1%. As of today, how do you assess the relative strength of Biden and Trump in Pennsylvania? Any change? I mean, I, I think, uh, it, it, let, let, let me sort of give you my, as best as I can, my informed opinion as opposed to a biased opinion. And, and Al, you can challenge me on this if, if you disagree. Um, the Delta in 2016 was plus 40,000 for Trump. The Delta in 2020 was minus 80 plus thousand right. for Trump. So he's heading in the wrong direction between 16 and 20. I don't think that he has improved his standing since 2020. Um, whereas I think the president has actually delivered meaningful things for the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, whether it's more access to broadband, more investment in infrastructure, capping and plugging orphaned wells or leading to methane pollution in our communities, like tangible concrete stuff that if he is able to clearly explain to the good people of Pennsylvania, I think that delta for the president, former president, grows. I, I believe that he is not made himself a stronger candidate since 2020. So looking at it right now, um, I think that the, the advantage goes to Biden, but you have to understand this is a razor thin state. When you're talking about a Commonwealth of 13 million people, the fact that the last two elections came down to 40,000 votes and 80,000 votes tells you just how close it is. But I think you know Trump again at minus 80,000 last time has not improved his standing uh, and so I think the, the edge goes to Biden right now. That's it. I'm not going to disagree with you because you know so much more than I do about it. But, but you know, one thing I've followed Pennsylvania politics for a long time, it's turned upside down over the past 30 years. The Philadelphia suburbs once were the heart of Eisenhower and Reagan country and now are solidly Democratic. Working class western counties like Westmoreland and Washington, which Michael Dukakis carried in 1988, right. are solidly red. Now, you lost there, although you really cut into the margins uh, in those counties. But what do Democrats need to do? I mean, give them a couple ideas to win, win back, maybe not carry, but win back more of those working class white voters. Yeah, and I, and I would point out, I mean, when James ran the Casey campaign, um, they had to win Beaver County out in the western corner near Ohio and West Virginia. Aliquippa. In, right, in order to win. And then they had to hold down the margins in the Philly suburbs where they where they got beat pretty bad. And so while the dynamics have shifted over time and, you know, Democrats like me are winning in the Philly suburbs, um, I actually won Beaver County for the first time a, a Democrats won that in a long time. Almost won Washington. And, and right, and, and a number of those counties uh, we were able to prevail in. So why were we able to do that? I think... Number one, um, back to basics, man. Al, we showed up, and I had a record of achievement as attorney general to run on, and I spoke about issues, both me personally and the advertising we did, um, which was done by, I think, the, the best of the best, Saul Shore, um, in, in those communities, focused on meeting their needs. What are the local challenges that they face that as governor I'm going to address? And so I think... You know, getting back to those basics of showing up, treating people with respect and listening, and then dealing with the big challenges that they face. I also think it's critically important as Democrats 
that we begin to speak about issues that we've, frankly, as a party, hidden on for some time, whether it's energy, whether it's public safety, as James alluded to before, or whether it's something I spent a great deal of time focused on, and that is the notion of real freedom. I think this idea that the other party gets to be more patriotic and somehow is more committed and dedicated to freedom uh, is insane when you actually look at their policies. And so I tried to prosecute the case about how I would be someone who would stand up for real freedom, the freedom to be able to make decisions over your own body, the freedom to take the medicines you want, the freedom for you as a parent to decide what books your kids are going to read, not what some politician decides, the freedom to chart your own course and the opportunity to succeed even if you don't have a college degree. These are the things that I focused on, prosecuting that case of real freedom. And clearly, given, given the results, um, that is what you know, struck a, a chord with the good people of Pennsylvania, even in those communities that have, over the last couple of decades, been going away from the Democratic Party. Yeah, yeah, you really did make uh, inroads. You are totally focused on Pennsylvania. I understand that. Uh, but there's huge infighting in Washington right now over the debt ceiling and efforts by House Republicans to force massive, massive spending cuts, including forcing states to give back all the COVID, uh, unspent COVID money. How, how would those proposals affect Pennsylvania? Yeah, I mean, Al, I, I try not to focus a lot on what happens in the Beltway. So my perspective on this is somewhat 40,000 foot, you'll, you'll excuse me, but I don't get how these Republicans who already authorized the spending for these things now don't want to pay for it. I mean, it's like lunacy. The fact that they are objecting to actually paying their credit card bill, which is really what this is. No American family gets to avoid paying their credit card bill after they bought the sweater or the jacket or whatever the hell they bought that they want to enjoy. I mean, that is crazy to me. And, and it, I mean, look, I think, I don't know, Kevin McCarthy, but I mean, this guy is the most spineless, weak leader I've ever seen. He is just kind of like led around by the extremes of his caucus. The idea that they are unwilling to pay their bills is crazy. Furthermore, these things that they're proposing to cut um, would really hurt Pennsylvania families. Just yesterday, um, I was in a rural community in Pennsylvania opening up a, or groundbreaking, a new veterans home for veterans with serious needs and serious challenges. Um, these Republicans who are, you know, proposing these cuts to on this debt ceiling bill or whatever it's called, they're proposing to cut veteran funding. That would make it harder for me and the state to deliver for those who sacrifice so much for our country. I mean, that's crazy. And it would hurt Pennsylvanians at a time where folks like our veterans and others need them most. So hopefully cooler heads will prevail. Um, hopefully this guy McCarthy will grow a spine and actually stand up, um, you know, to, to the, you know, the extremes in his caucus and just pay their damn bills, which is what this is all about. Boy, uh, I'm going to turn it back to James, but, uh, uh, I'll take that bet on Kevin McCarthy uh, growing his spine. Uh, yeah. In any event, uh, James Carville. Uh, so, Governor, we've had a lot of experience uh, with Supreme Court races. We just saw, uh, you know, had good news in Wisconsin and, and god-awful news in North Carolina. Uh, isn't there, uh, Jim Thomas has vacancy coming up. Uh, what's, what's the state of play in the Pennsylvania Supreme Court right now? Um there is a race in the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. One of our justices passed away, though he was already scheduled to 
to retire. And so there is an opening on the court. Um, right now, um, the Democratic uh, elected justices in, enjoy an advantage on the court. Even if the Republican were to win, the Democrats would still enjoy an advantage, though it would be down to a one-seat advantage. I, I don't love thinking about our courts in partisan terms, um, but that is the makeup, and, and that race is uh, going to be an important one on the ballot this November. It's a, it's, a, it's a November election. That's correct. That's, that's correct. All right, so, you know, Pennsylvania, the, you know, it's, it's, still, it's not homogeneous. You know, Philadelphia is considerably different than Williamsport, which is considerably different than Derry, which is considerably different than, you know, Allegheny. But how is governor... Is, 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 how do you look? You, you you look at the entire Commonwealth. Yeah, and you know you got to be saying that, that here's some places that we can help that can perform much better than they than they do. I mean, I'm sure suburban Philadelphia is doing just fine. Thank you. We need to continue. What do you see? Real opportunities for economic growth in the state. Yeah. And what do you think can can drive it? Um, I'll I'll answer, but if if I may, I gotta just sort of take you on on something, which okay. you're not going to like, but I, I've, I've said this behind your back, so I feel the need to say it to your face, so I never get accused of um, saying something behind your back. Your, your sort of famous adage of Philly and Pittsburgh, and I think you said yeah. Alabama in the middle or something. Man, I just think you're totally wrong about that. And maybe that's what it used to be like, but as I travel the Commonwealth, um, both as, a, as attorney general, as a candidate for governor, and now as governor, I got to tell you, I think there's a lot more similarities and differences. Now, it's true the terrain looks completely different, but man, you go to some of these, you know, agricultural rural communities in southwestern Pennsylvania, they're not connected to broadband. But you can also go to West Philly, and there's areas where they're not connected to broadband. Um, you know, you want to talk about defending a woman's right to choose. There are rural communities in Pennsylvania where I had you know, hundreds of women lining up to make sure I won for governor just to protect that right. I think that there are common challenges and actually common issues that unify us um, that blur a lot of those differences between the difference in our, you know, the difference superficially in our terrain. So I think there's a lot more commonality. When you think about how we grow our economy, it's also important that we not just grow it in Philly and Pittsburgh, but we grow it all across this Commonwealth. I see three areas where I'm focused most of my attention on. One is around energy. We're uniquely positioned to compete on energy. Number two is around robotics and AI, especially in the Western part of our state, centered around two of our great universities, Pitt and CMU. And three, three is around biotech. We've got um, some of the world leading genomic therapy uh, companies in Southeastern PA. So I think those are three areas where we got to really compete. And I've been laser beam focused on creating jobs and growing the economy and have put some wins up early on in my time as governor uh, to do just that, especially in those three areas. Well, Governor, I didn't mind my trip to the woodshed, and I'm, I'm glad that you focused on the Commonwealth as a whole. I, I, I can assure you, uh, before I turn it back to Al, but the one thing about when I was in Pennsylvania, and I suspect it's true too, outside of the metropolitan areas, the people's affection for Penn State is more like a SEC school than than you would think of a of an East Coast team. I mean Penn State is really a dominant cultural figure Huge. in yeah. the center of the state. 
I'm sure you. I'm sure you'll be wearing white and going up to see. <laughs> yeah, and let me tell you, I'm a huge sports guy, huge. And um, people always say, "Well, how can you, how can you run statewide if you're a huge Eagles fan? You're going to piss off Steelers fans and all that." And like, here's the reality: just be true to your sports teams, and and people appreciate that more than you bullshitting them about who you support. That said, Penn State is a. It's not just a team here; it's a culture. And it's amazing. I mean, one of the most extraordinary things I got the chance to do during my campaign uh, was tailgate with the late, great Franco Harris. Um, wow. At Penn State oh, wow. The immaculate wow. reception. <laughs> I miss Franco, man. It was, um, it was just amazing to be with him there. But um, this, it is a culture. It's wonderful. And, I mean, I'm, I'm proud. I didn't go to Penn State, but I'm proud to be the governor of a Commonwealth that, you know, reveres and loves Penn right. State the way they do. Well, I will, I, James, I'll just say the only place, the only entity in Pennsylvania that's doing as well as Josh Shapiro of the Philadelphia Eagles. The Super Bowl, re-signing Jalen Hurts, and having a fabulous draft choice. Governor, I think you're going to be happy not only with, with uh, governance, but with football next year. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you, man. I really appreciate it, Governor. Yeah, Thanks, really do. Thank and, you, yeah, you know, I would just say, James, if politicians are viewed as stocks and you want, you want to buy Shapiro futures. Yeah, I, did, <laughs> I, I, I was in on that. I was yeah. in on that little puppy early. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Man, this was totally cool. Thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. Well, you bet. Well, thank you, Governor. Hey, James, I, I hate to tell you this, but I am genuinely, I mean genuinely worried about debt default next month. It would be catastrophic for the economy, markets, 401ks, retiree jobs, everything. And normally you say, oh, these things always work out. Yeah, there was a shutdown in 13 that cost, cost us something, but that's, that's really rare. But I think the situation is different this time. The debt ceiling, uh, you know, we really ought to understand is not has nothing to do with future spending. It's paying off previous debts, largely run up by Donald Trump and Republicans. But uh, the House Republicans uh, are intent on they passed a sham bill, which doesn't provide a budget, but would involve massive spending cuts. They won't tell us where. Uh, and Biden rightly says that we ought to pass a clean bill to cover our past debts, then negotiate over future spending and have Republicans deliver a budget as he has. Under normal situation, a rather obvious compromise, pass a largely clean debt bill uh, with a commitment for spending reductions reforms at a time certain later. That's not possible, however, right now, I don't think, because Kevin McCarthy, the House Speaker, is such a weak leader. And he knows that four or five of his right-wing members could turn on him at any time and he's gone. They are playing Russian roulette with the government, the economy, markets, savings, standard of living, and they may well pull the trigger. James, I really have to tell you, I haven't been this worried about this sort of situation maybe ever. Well, uh, you have good reason to worry. You have very good reason. And I had breakfast, with, you know, well, of ranking member, Democratic member on the budget committee, Brendan Boyle. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, he he certainly thinks that they could default. Uh, they're not they're, the first thing you got to understand about that caucus. They're not very smart. And but 
what we're not doing, and we never do, we're not selling this. We're not explaining to people that this is not, they'll say, look, we put a budget up, we're ready to negotiate, why didn't the president just sit down with us? We've already put what we wanted at. And he's refusing to talk, all right? Now, we know that it's just paying off past debts. We know that Obama made a disastrous decision to negotiate with him back then that we know we can't do that again. We haven't explained it to people. No, we sure haven't. We're winning the, just like we don't explain what we're doing in Ukraine. And, and the idea, there's this democratic idea. Well, we're on the right side. We're doing the right things. The, the, you know, Washington Post or the New York Times wrote an editorial saying we're doing the right thing. And we're not winning. This, we, we have to prepare for this battle because they're going to do something. And their attitude is, yeah, it'll be catastrophic for the economy, and people will blame Biden, and it will help us. Yep, exactly. I, I mean, that, 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 that's exactly what they're saying. Matt Gass, Paul, Gosar, Lauren Boebert, they, you're, you're, James, you just nailed it. They, they, they'd be delighted with the default, American cratering. They figure Biden would take the blame, devastated economy, and they'd be the political and All we tried to do is bring some fiscal sanity to, to, to the, this giant spending machine that we call Washington, and we made a proposal, and they won't even talk to us. And you got to answer that, dude. We ain't winning the fight right now. We're on the side of the angels. We just have this attitude that what we do, you know, why aren't we hitting them? You know, I go back, talk about this all the time. Why are we letting these bastards get away with expanding child labor? There's a story I read last night from a credible source that caught the Department of Labor caught 10-year-olds working at McDonald's in Louisville. Why aren't we on top of this? These fucking people are nuts, and all we do is got one thumb up our ass and one in our mouth and switch every five minutes. I mean, it's, it's really frustrating to know that you have a winning argument and we're not making the freaking argument. It is not It is not known out there. The press does not do a, a good enough job. Some of these goo-goo deficit groups have bought into the sham McCarthy thing. The Republicans have never produced a budget. We are now into the first week of May. One of their campaign commitments, I hope you're hearing this, Maya McGinnis, one of their campaign commitments was we'll have a budget and we'll pass our budget. Where is it? They haven't done it. Uh, yeah, yeah, you're right. And in the public, well, James, look, maybe you don't like what they got, but you know, at least they put something out there. They're trying to, and, you know, your boy doesn't, you know, it's all, and I'm afraid that this, they flooded the zone with bullshit, and we're not, we're not flooding the zone with facts, and and people are just too, like, oh, they'll think of something they always do, right? I'm not, I'm not, I'm worried about this one, I gotta tell you. Overall. Well, I think you ought to be. You know, when you were running big campaigns and I was covering them, there were serious debates and there were big differences between Bill Clinton and Bob Dole or Harris Wofford and Dick Thornburg, later Barack Obama and John Boehner, Paul Ryan. But, you know, many of today's Republicans most don't bear any resemblance to the Doles or Bushes or Boehners uh, or even Reagans. You know, let me give you when five people were killed in Texas by a gunman. Governor Greg Rapp Abbott's initial reaction was, well, they were illegal immigrants. 
One of them was a nine-year-old little boy. Under criticism, he walked back that sort of. But what type of person would use a tragedy, a dead little nine-year-old boy slaughtered by a gun to demagogue about immigration? James, the Trumpification of this party is almost complete. Well, Greg Abbott, you remember he was at a fundraiser and was told about the Uvalde murders, and of course he stayed at the fundraiser for another couple of hours. I, I, I don't know, and I, I, I don't. I, at some point, I would love to, and it's not going to happen because they won't do it, and I would get mad. I'd walk out of them. I just love to say, no. Tell me what about your Christian faith drives you? What did you learn in Sunday school? It would drive you to say something this idiotic. I, I, I mean, I just love to get an answer to that. And, and you know, I know if I talk, you talk to Lauren Bobert or Marjorie Taylor Greene, they said, well, you know, gun rights in the Bible, James. Oh, yeah, I remember right there with Deuteronomy, okay? It, 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 it's so unbelievable. It's so divorced from anything that we do, you know, from... That you can't imagine it. And they just do these crazy things. They ban Rosa Parks, learning about Rosa Parks in school. They want to Learning expand. about her color. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because they want to expand child labor. They want to cut the shit out of veterans' benefits. I, I mean, it's really stunning. It is. And, you know, I, I mean, I'll go to your point. Uh, I mean, what would Jesus say about someone... Uh, using the killing of a little nine-year-old boy to demagogue about an issue like immigration. Uh, it's just, it is. It's stunning. It's appalling. Speaking of Texas, however, I, I, I want to give a bit of good news, James. One of our favorite guests, Colin Allred, is going to run against Senator Ted Cruz. And he actually suggested that when we interviewed him several months ago. Now, Texas has been the home of lost Democratic dreams for decades. But I think Allrad's going to give Cruz fits. I think he's a stronger candidate than Beto O'Rourke was last time. Uh, I think uh, that he uh, really knows who he is. I think Cruz may be weaker because of some of the stupid, dumb things he said. And Allrad is smart. He's energetic. He's articulate. And when Ted Cruz tries to play his faux macho role, how's he going to match up against a former Baylor and NFL football player, James? Well, I'm sitting here... You know, Peninsula Five and a Half Star Hotel, and they actually had room service because doing the show out here. And I actually had a ham and egg breakfast. And you know, in a ham and egg breakfast, the chicken participates. The hog is committed. Uh, and when it comes to calling running, I'm a hog. I'm committed, man. I, I, I think it's a terrific opportunity. I think he's a terrific guy. I think he, the prototype of what I think the modern Democratic Party should be about. You know, he, he's an athlete, he's an African-American, he's self-made, he, he was undrafted, he lasted five years, five, six years in the NFL. Uh, lawyer? <clears throat> lawyer, terrific, you know, single mother, I think, raised him just to be a, just a terrific, you know, Collins, you got a little bit of a Boy Scout in him almost. I mean, it's kind of refreshing. And he's, he's a great public servant, and I, I, I you know, they're going to have to bust me, but I'm going down. I don't think we're going to go down. Remember, Beto got within two, two and a half points of Cruz. And, you know, we're, everybody was disappointed by Texas in 2020, but I, I, I think uh, 
uh, I think we've got a real shot here. And he's going to get a lot of resources. I know the uh, Senate Majority PAC is really committed to this. Uh, I think Senator Schumer's really committed to it. Uh, I, I, I'm going to raise a lot of money for him in New Orleans, I can tell you. Uh, he's, he's just a terrific candidate. Well, Beto, Beto was uh, a charismatic candidate, but he also could be flaky at times. And he also said some uh, some dumb things. I think Colin Alrad will be not certainly not going to be flaky. Like he's going to be more disciplined. And I really do believe that he may well be a much better statewide Texas candidate than Beto O'Rourke, who, as you say, came within a couple points. Yeah, he did. And, uh, I mean, Colin is much more measured I would say, than Beto was. And he's, uh, you know, he keeps his cool pretty good. He, he's, he's, uh, he's thoughtful. Uh, and, uh, you know, you, you don't become that good an athlete. You don't become a walk-on NFL player unless you're tough. And uh, I, I remember during the insurrection in the Congress, that some guy, I think his name was Andy Biggs, a guy from Maryland. Yep. Colin, oh, yeah. Yeah. he like, threatened that he was going to fight. And <clears throat> I said to myself, you make it a big error, dude. And he, he thought twice about it and got back to his side. Someone, someone, he, he tell, someone, someone tell that boy to go take his seat. This is just not- Right. And it was Colin and Connor Lamb, who was like a Marine Corps officer. And that, it, it wasn't going to work very well for you, Mr. Biggs. And James, I'm going to digress and use that as occasion to tell one of my favorite stories. Bob Kayat, the great former chancellor of Ole Miss and NFL player when he played in the college all-star game when just had to be graduated from Ole Miss they played against the Baltimore Colts and he came out as a starting uh, left guard for the college team they were all just college graduates and he was up against Big Daddy Lipscomb uh, and Big Daddy looks at him and he says he says son does your mama know you're here and I think that's the way that uh, that's the way that Andy uh, Viggs or whatever his name was should have felt when he was uh, going to challenge Colin Allred Ted Cruz you're in for a tough race thank goodness yeah, yeah. This, I'm excited about this one. I, I really am. And I'm excited about the, the quality of the candidate we have, and I'm excited about the rottenness of the opposition we have. He's a, you know, one of these days, he's already in the Ivy League Hall of Fame first ballot. But if, if somebody says your, your dad was a murderer and your wife is a hag, and you're sucking up to him, <clears throat> I don't know, that doesn't seem like a Texas value to me, but... I'll ask Paul Begala. Or, or, or well, uh, you know, you also can ask Paul or when there's a, an emergency and your neighbors uh, uh, have lost all their uh, all their heat and electricity and you take off for Acapulco. I, I don't know. Is that is that a stand-up? Is that what they did at the Alamo, James? Well, the, he blamed his daughters. Yeah, well, you got to okay. blame somebody. Yeah, yeah. I mean, of course, his daughters, at least one of them is a big Democrat. <laughs> well, if you were around Ted Cruz, you'd become a Democrat yeah, pretty quickly, yeah. too. Anyway, then, yeah. all right, Colin Alred, um, you know, we, we're... Shout out. We're excited. Go. Go, Cat, go. Hey, now for the outrage of the week. You know, poor Supreme Court Justice Sam Alito. He complains he is being picked on. The court, quote, is being picked on. The court is being hammered daily, unfairly, and nobody, practically nobody, is defending us, the justice says. He also said he has a pretty good idea who leaked his draft of the Dobbs decision and the abortion protections and what their motives were. It was some lefty who wanted to intimidate 
the justices not to vote for Dobbs. But he said he couldn't name the person. James, there is so much to unpack here. First, as to nobody coming to poor Sam's defense and his conservative colleagues, he gave the interview to two Wall Street Journal editorial writers who are staunch supporters. That page loves Sam Melito. How about the Federalist Society and Leonard Leo with deep pockets? And how about the vast majority of congressional Republicans? I'm sorry, Mr. Justice, this crybaby stuff doesn't cut it. As for the leak, Alito says his side never would have done it as they are targets of assassination, end quote. Come on, I don't know who leaked that draft, and I suspect Alito doesn't either. If the leak came from a liberal, it was stupid. It didn't change anything. I think just as plausible, probably more so, as it came from one of Alito's allies to make sure that Chief Justice Roberts and Brett Kavanaugh didn't go wobbly and reject overturning a 50-year abortion precedent. This court is not held in historically low regard, Justice Alito, because of these unfair leftist attacks with nobody defending you. Rather consider, for almost a year, Republicans blocked a highly qualified Obama nominee, Merrick Garland, in 2016, saying, we don't confirm justices in an election year. That was a lie. As evidence for the bum's rush four years later, given the Republican Amy Comey Barrett, in a matter of weeks, right before the 2020 election. And this court is mired in one ethical controversy after another, particularly with Justice Clarence Thomas accepting hundreds of thousands of dollars of gifts and benefits from a wealthy conservative. The court's ethics rules are like Swiss cheese. Now, these conservatives, you can also guarantee 95% of the time, are going to hand down rulings that benefit both the Republican Party and the privilege, the vested interest. And Alito and company are intent on curbing rather than expanding rights. Now, the much-aggrieved Justice Alito ought to recognize the court has created its own problems. I'm sorry, Mr. Justice. Well, uh, a lot of people read this. Uh, Dr. Fauci gave an interview, and which from David Wallace Wells, who's a science writer, and said, look, uh, we had 1.1 million deaths. Obviously, there's some things that, that we could have done better. And we have to do a little soul search and figure out what went wrong. And, of course, the idiotic editorial page of the Wall Street Journal, and I, I've been trying to think of a better word than idiotic, but this early in the morning, I'm California. It's the best I can come up with, with the idiotic Kimberly Strassel saying, attacking Dr. Fauci, of course, not mentioning anything about the conservative mistake. So the, my friend Jonathan Shake takes us through that. Uh, Donald Trump threatened to fire Dr. Nancy Messimus, top CDC official, was telling reporters in February the virus could likely spread to the United States. Trump insisted that month that China was getting it under control and more and more the U.S. had, and, and more and more U.S. had 15 people and 15 within a, go down within a, close to zero. He repeated over and over, just stay calm. It'll go away, May 10th. It's going to go away, hopefully, by the end of the month. If not, hopefully soon after that, May 31st. It's going to go away. It's going to go away, April 3rd. I always said, even without a vaccine, it goes away, January 16th. All right. This, uh, the Hoover Institute scholar Richard Epstein, you've got to be a, a true freaking idiot, his model predicted 500 Americans would die. Then he had a gross error, and he predicted 5,000 would die. Remember, 1.1 million people died. But these, this kind of stupidity and idiocy carries the day. And I, I think John Chait 
did a good job of exposing just what massive hypocrites and how these people are willing to, to let people die in their perceived commercial interests. So the, the, the depths of, of the, the intellectual dishonesty on the right are, are so deep that, 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 that you, it's useless to try to find the bottom. James, you know, you're right. I mean, one of the, <laughs> there's a general sense, particularly among Republicans, but even among some independent types, that Ron DeSantis was pretty good on COVID. You know, he was tough. He kept the state open, did okay. If you look at the data, California had far fewer deaths, had far fewer hospitalizations than Florida. I mean, that counts for something. Uh, whatever you think, Ron DeSantis, more people died in Florida while he was governor, far more than died in California. And yet DeSantis claims his was a great success story. Yeah, yeah, what, what one should do, and I do this, is go to COVID, de the per COVID death rates per right. capita by state. And you, you could guess eight out of 10 of the states with the highest per capita COVID death rate. And you could guess eight out of 10 of the states were the lowest, all right? Just think of yourself, where are the most stupid, what are the stupidest red states they are? You're gonna get Utah being an example because they're not as stupid in Utah as they are in Alabama. And, uh, you know, of course, the, the states were the lowest, California, Vermont, Massachusetts, Connecticut, you know, you, know, you, you could guess it. I, I mean, it, they don't care. It's just stunning. How, to get, <clears throat> how the right can be so oblivious to human life and statistical accuracy. It, 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 I don't, how do these people, how in the fuck do they get up in the morning? How do they look at their children? I mean, it's one thing to, to, to get it wrong and to say after you have an event like this where we, our excess deaths were higher than any other Western country, but somebody say, hey, well, we need to look at it. We, could, we certainly could have done a better job. You bet you we could have done better. And the errors we made, can you imagine if they would have had total control of this thing? Oh, my God. They slide their way through it. They're taking horse dewormer. But that was a real thing. All right? They, they were all pushing that. That wasn't a French deal, hydroxychloroquine. They, they were pushing that. They were in the White House touting this garbage. God almighty, man, this... Well, his own, his own top uh, COVID advisor, Deborah Burks, said he probably cost, I believe she said, two to 300,000 lives uh, because of his malpractice. That's, that may be conservative. And, 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 and the, the only thing that would hurt him is probably 80% of his voters. But, I mean, the, the stupidity that manifests itself during this pandemic is, it's almost when you think back, it's like, it's hard to believe. And... You know, the next catastrophic event we have, I'm afraid we're not going to do any better. I'll tell you what is better is those playoffs. God, I have I have had a – I couldn't watch the second half of the Lakers game last night. It was too late. But, man, these games are great. Shit, I was out here and it was too late for me. But, they, they I mean, honest <laughs> to God, LeBron guarding Stephon Curry. I mean, it just – and the two of them bantering. It's just – you know, it's you, you can – Tell your grandchildren about that someday, Jay. It really is. They're fabulous playoffs. That Miami team without Jimmy Butler, that's the toughest team I've ever seen. They're not far from the most talented, but goddamn, they are tough. That's kind of surprised me. Uh, I mean, the Sixers beating the Celtics, you know, without Embiid in right. Boston. That's 
No. I mean, that. I mean, it's selfish. It's like they won't play defense. Well, that makes a, you know, a must win for them. Uh, I think it's tonight. All right, now the questions from, we have such fabulous listeners, James. They really are, and they are such good questions. And the most agonizing thing I do every week, I think, is to reduce them down to, you know, six or seven because there's so many good ones. Uh, uh, Barb in Mount Airy, Maryland, says that in her book, Isabel Wilkerson states that Obama won despite the white vote. He won because of the African-American vote. He got less white votes in 2012 than 2008. Uh, I think that's large. She's right about the African-American vote, and I'm not sure that, you know, the white vote was certainly not down in 2008. But her question is about Tim Scott. Let's say he does rise to the top. Trump gets hit by a truck, et cetera. How would a black Republican like Tim Scott uh, do, and could he win white votes? Well, yes, he could win white votes, of course, because he's a Republican. All right, he's obviously, he's obviously has a history of winning white votes because he got, got elected in... in South Carolina, um, you know, I just use this because I get one thing and I, I take all your observations seriously. Our problem right now is, is we're having chronic low black turnout and no one seems to want to or, or try to deal with this and we've got to put this front and center. You, you can't win an election without getting a substantial number of white voters. I'm sorry, and you have 18% of the country elect 52 senators, uh, and it's mostly in smaller states that are, are, are wider than, than other states. But, but, but uh, I, uh, I'm just distraught by the, the, the black turnout numbers that we get, and I hope we can get them up. Uh, and yes, Tim voted, he can get some white Republicans. He's not very any primary voters. What has Tim Scott ever said or done? I mean, okay, so he's a black Republican senator from South Carolina, historic, et cetera, et cetera. But who is, who is this guy who was supposed to do something with police reform? He couldn't do that. And he just talks and says nothing and does nothing, as far as I can see, with, irrespective of what race yeah. he is. No, I agree. Uh, Mark in Ponte Vedra, Florida, I love Ponte Vedra, Florida, says, with all this back and forth with Trump and DeSantis, is this just a setup where basically in the general election, Trump will pick DeSantis as his running mate? Am I crazy? Mark, I like you. I like Panovich, but yeah, you're crazy. Uh, I mean, ne never mind the fact that you can't run from the same state, as Dick Cheney proved in 2000. You know, one of them could move. Trump could go back and reclaim New York as his residence. But these two guys are, you know, they don't like each other now, and they're going to hate each other uh, in the next couple months. This would make Jack Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson look like the honeymooners. That's not going to happen. Uh, and uh, so uh, I like you, Mark, a lot. I love your town. And I look forward to your next question. But this is an easy no. Brian in DeWitt, Iowa says, this is, boy, Iowa is such a sad story, James. He said, Iowa is not going to have any meaningful input in Democratic candidates this cycle. And they probably don't deserve it. I understand the loyalty to South Carolina from Biden in the order of states with the change in primaries. But is this the best way to select winners and losers? You know, why don't we first, why don't the first in the nation primary uh, go to a type of state that's likely to play a role in the general election? Well, you and I are similar mind on this. This decision to diss New Hampshire, Iowa, I understand, the caucus. They screwed it up. 
you, you, you just Democrat. You can't let Democrats make rules. They'll because they'll just not. They can't stop themselves. They'll just keep making them. It, it, in New Hampshire, the Biden people honestly have painted themselves in a corner now, because Chris Sununu is not going to let it, it. Not going to let anybody go ahead of New Hampshire. So you're not sanctioning New Hampshire. By the way, it is a swing state, and I, 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 you, you can fill it in. Al Gore and what it meant there, they, you know, a state with two Democratic senators, uh, both who are in, you know, could be very competitive races. Uh, they have two Democratic congressmen. And I, I got to tell you, Bobby Kennedy and Marianne Williamson, they're going to do well in New Hampshire. You know, I don't know what Gene McCarthy got, but remember, Lynn Johnson was running in March of uh, 1968. I, I think Gene McCarthy got, I don't know, 32, 33%. More than that, actually. It was more yeah. than whatever it was, okay? It, 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 and the same thing, Buchanan exposed weaknesses. This is going to be a problem for them. And they don't have a good answer. And they should have never fucked with it in the first place. No, I agree with you. I think they're going to get not only the protest vote, the grievance vote, but the New Hampshire people uh, uh, are pissed. Uh, they really are. And uh, I think it's going to make it much easier to, I don't think they'll win, but to cast a, a vote that's going to embarrass Biden. But yeah, I, I, You know, 70% of American people don't want him to run. Somebody's going to vote for somebody in somebody's right. primary. Absolutely. And it's not going to be that they think that, that, that Bobby Kennedy is going to be president Thank or anything. God. It's just people, you know, they, they have to have a way to express themselves. And this is going to, people in New Hampshire are going to express themselves. It's going to be in a very favorable way. I agree. Mark in Rancho Murrieta, California, near Sacramento, says taking nothing okay. for granted in the outcome of the 2024 presidential election, would it strengthen the ticket to replace Kamala Harris with uh, Amy Klobuchar, Gretchen Whitmer, or Tammy Duckworth for VP? Couple, first of all, Mark's not going to happen. I mean, he is now totally, all he had to do was look at that uh, announcement video. Uh, it's, that's sealed. And just as Biden, if Biden runs, Harris will be his running mate. Uh, would it have made a difference? I think it might have. I think, you know, if he'd picked a Whitmer or someone earlier, I think it would have been a stronger case. Normally, I don't think people vote for vice presidents, but when you're voting for, against an 82-year-old man, that's a consideration. So, um, uh, Mark, uh, I think uh, we are we have what we have, James. I, I think the explanation is is simpler than that. Uh, I, I think that the, the reason that they took her, and we know for a fact that they really didn't want her, is the Harris people do a very good job of making her a stand-in for every female of color, and they would have they would have faced unrelenting. You're insulting women of color, and they're obviously a very big part of the Democratic coalition. Uh, they had painted themselves in a corner, and they, they're going to get out of this corner. And, of course, she's going to stay on the ticket because i got to say, if I were advising the president, which I'm decidedly not, uh, I would say, you know what, let's just take the path of least resistance here. But I think they made a mistake when they did that in 2020, but they did. And... Here we are. This is what, this is where the way it's going to be. Yeah, you're right. Uh, from across the pond, Jamie in the United Kingdom asked a really, really profound question. Uh, and he asked, he said, the inevitable consequence of a victory for Trump or the GOP in its current form will be a collapse. If the West collapses as an effective, unified, global political bloc, 
it won't be possible for us to escape the effects of this. The life of every ordinary American is going to become worse, and only our enemies will win. You know, do the Democrats, I hope they really understand, this is Jamie, the weight upon their shoulders. Uh, has any political party ever borne such a responsibility before? Wow. Wow. It's a question of, 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 of maybe we've had the entire show. And, and the thing about our friend from across the pond, it's not exaggerating. You know, I, I was about here this Millican thing in, in, in Beverly Hills. And, you know, you're in a Democratic Party and people express this confidence. It's kind of a coalition. You know, I don't like something. The only, the only hope for civilization, not the United States, for, for world civilization, and this is frightening to think, is the Democratic Party. That's it. That's it. Nothing else. When you like it, don't like it, it you can call, you can constipate it. It doesn't message very effectively. It's got a, you know, not terribly disciplined party by traditional standards. There's no other hope. And you, you are so right. If he comes back, we're only getting a whiff of what would happen to our to, to NATO, to our alliances, uh, to to the courts, to anything you can imagine. And by the way, to I don't say anything to Trump's credit, he's being very honest. He says, "I am your retribution," and he will use the presidency to punish every perceived enemy he has to align himself with the worst international criminals that you can imagine, to turn his back on some of the most prosperous and, and U.S.-friendly nations in the world. In my, our friend in the U.K., you are not exaggerating this. Understand that. That's what's at stake here. Jamie, that is a fabulous question. Please send more questions because, uh, man, you have really... Uh, you, you, you really have, uh, have gotten what it's all about. James, Russ in Lafayette, Colorado. I have never been to Lafayette or heard of Lafayette, Colorado. I know Lafayette, Louisiana. I got to look that up. It's probably suburban. That's what it sounds like, I know. He said, he asked, this is something I care a lot about. Do you see a realistic pathway for Democrats in North Carolina to organize and break the GOP lock on state control? I think Governor Cooper is great, but is he the exception? First, I'll give you the good news because there's not very much for us. I think we, I think the Democrats, uh, with their gubernatorial candidate, Attorney General Stein, have a good chance in 2024, with all things being equal, because the Republicans may well nominate their lieutenant governor, a man named Robinson, who is a real right-wing kook. Uh, and I think uh, I think they could well win that. But I am really pessimistic about North Carolina. I think national Democrats made a colossal blunder in 2022 in not focusing on those state Supreme Court races down there, letting Republicans spend four, five, seven times more outside money uh, they lost those races. Uh, that means that the between the legislature and now the Supreme Court, they can do almost whatever they want to on redistricting, on voting rights, on all kinds of things, uh, even abortion. They seem on the verge of a of a 12-week abortion uh, abortion ban after 12 weeks. And Roy Cooper can veto it, but he doesn't have the votes to sustain it. So um, 
I am I'm pessimistic about North Carolina, which I continue to believe is of all the states that Biden lost and Democrats lost in 2020, the, the state with the best chance of winning in subsequent elections is North Carolina. But, uh, boy, that state Supreme Court uh, outcome in 2022 is going to make it far more difficult. And that really saddens me. Yeah, and and we're, I think, we're, uh, I hope we correct ourselves, but, you know, very big, there's a mayor's race in Jacksonville, Florida, largest city by far in Florida, on May 16th. And I'm told by people that we're they're having trouble getting, you know, we obviously, um, you know, my cause is we're worried about black turnout, as we well should be. And the people in Florida feel like they're not being sufficiently supported in this by the National Democrats. Uh, anybody listening to this, this, this is you know, Sanders' home county. It's a, as far as Florida goes, it's pretty much of a, a toss-up county. It would be a, a good start that Florida Democrats could show that they could do something. It'd be a good start for Nikki Freed, my friend, who's chairman of the Democratic Party down in Florida, so took it over. And it's important. And somebody, for God's sake, tell the DNC to send resources to Jacksonville. Let's get these two Tennessee legislators, the two Justins, and let's get them in there, and let's see if we can get some some some, some real turnout here, because it, 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 Jacksonville is a great place. It it can go Democratic, but we, we got we got to work this, and we we got to get resources in there between nine. All right, James. Let me ask you a simple question. What in the hell is the DNC chair and the White House political director doing about any of this stuff? You know, I don't know from what they tell me on the ground. <clears throat> not very much. Yeah, they didn't in North Carolina. And, you know, the same thing? Right. But I'm talking no, about know, Jacksonville right now. You know. Yeah. But both. Yes. And and you know they they said they gave a lot of grants away to GOTV, and, I, and I'm sure they did. Okay. I, usually when people have a it hasn't been successful. And, you know, if the DNC's got one, you know, they got a lot of voter files and stuff like that, we have got to do something about what strikes me is chronic low black turnout. And, I, you know, I, I talk about it and people, it's, it's irrefutable. First of all, no one says, well, you, you got your facts wrong, James. No one has an answer, and I got to tell you, I don't either. But somebody has got to try to look for it. All right, you just can't say I don't have an answer. It's too critical. And if we're going to win in Duval County, we're not, we're not going to do it without having a robust turnout of, of, of black of black voters. We're just not, and or, or in North Carolina, you know, in North Carolina in 2022, which was a disappointing result. It's North Carolina's black share of population is 21, I don't know, 21.4. Yeah, just about right? that, yeah. the, the, the black share of vote was 17. Well, man, if you got anything close to the vote in, in the population share, you'd, you'd win right. You'd have won both those Supreme Court races and probably the Senate race. Right, you'd probably won the Senate seat. Yeah. What a difference. Right? And, and, and you don't even have to overperform. You just got to perform. And we're just we're going in the wrong direction here. And we, I, my guess is, is we're not connecting with, with younger uh, voters, you know, probably voters of color in general, but we sure have a problem with, with younger yeah, blacks. no question. It's been, it, we've got to, we have to bring it up. We have to talk about it. I'm sorry, it's necessary. 
it, it's not, you know, I think some people become so traumatized by saying anything remotely related to race. Well, I don't know, you think we ought to talk about it? Yeah, of course we ought to talk about it. Hell yeah. Are you going to lose elections? Because you have a problem that, that, that you're not addressing? And we have a problem, and I don't think we're addressing yeah. it. No, I think you're absolutely right. Um, our final question uh, is from Mike in East Brunswick, New Jersey. Uh, oh, now, Mike is a big Biden fan. He thinks, I think, we've been a little bit unfair to him. He says the only complaint is about his age. Okay. But his question is different. His question is, if it's age, why? how about the insurrectionist uh, who is opposing him? namely Donald Trump. He's only two years younger. He's actually four years younger, but the point is the same. Seems to be much less healthy by all accounts. Why is an age a factor in the discussion of Trump? Well, I mean, people, they do bring it up. He's hardly, you know, somebody say it's hardly a spring chicken. But the problem is his voters don't give a shit. They'd be dead to vote for it, all right? Our voters do. It's just like their voters want to be lied to. And they constantly do get lied to. Our voters react poorly if they're, if they're lied to. If, 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 if uh, Justice Brown or, or Sodomy or, or, or Kagan or something did the same thing that Neil Gorsuch and, and Clarence Thomas are doing, we wouldn't like that. We'd say that's not, that, they don't care. They want to the, the, understand. These voters want to be lied to and stolen from. That, that's, that's what they really care about. We, we just can't do the same thing. We, we, we just have more responsible voters than they do. I'm sorry. You know, that, look at the Kimberly Strassel piece. But that level of, of just rank dishonesty and hypocrisy, and people on the right will still read this garbage. I, 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 I don't have... Uh, the explanation, I guess, is that I, I reluctantly come to this. They don't give a shit about the truth. They don't give a shit about anything. It's just, you know, corporate power screwing over people. You know, you can't be too young to work and you, you can't get paid too little to work. And that's, that's, that, that's the general philosophy which leads them. And I, I, it's stunning that people follow this. It's frustrating. I, I know all of that, but it's it's just what we're dealing with. We're, we're dealing with uh, uh, people that just, you know, if you, you look at what's going on with Fox, and it's just one fucking lie after another, and they're all on there, you know, they're saying something to each other, and they're telling uh, these these people something entirely different, and they get caught, and the people don't care. I, I, I don't know. It's it's It's... it's it's unaccountability, but you know we we have to do our our own, and you know we got to start explaining this 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 debt uh, thing that's coming up, and we're not we're not we're not communicating well on, on a lot of. Different oh, things. I agree. You you know you alluded to Fox, and I just want to tell you out there, if you all haven't seen the New York Times story of Dan Tucker Carlson, you had any doubt that he was a whether he was a vile racist. Uh, just uh, read that piece. He's also he's also a, you know that, he's a disturbed I, man. Too. I read this he's disturbed. He's really he's I, I, deeply I deranged and disturbed. Um, and he's a vile okay. racist. I, I, well, all right, let me. I read the story, and it said the Fox board said this 
was what drove them to the well, side. I don't know. This, well, they had all kind of other stuff. But yeah, I mean, what, I mean, uh, were they surprised? No, I, yeah. I, I don't. I, I don't. No, I agree. I, I, I agree. Missed, there was so much else. I missed so much I'm else. I'm just saying this was, you know, I, I didn't. I wasn't surprised by any of this. He is what he is. But uh, anyway, all right, right. I, I just my question: Why did this push him over the top? I, that's what I don't understand. Well, I, you know. There's so much that should have pushed him over the top that didn't. But, you know, my, my great fear is that, you know, in, an, in a month or two, they're going to be right back to where they were, which is, um, I hope that's wrong. I just hope that's wrong. Anyway, keep those questions coming in. And, and Dan Max, uh, Tom in Vancouver asked a great question we didn't get to. Let's make sure we get to Tom in Vancouver, Washington's questions next time. But, boy, we love those questions, James. And that guy from UK, or that woman, I don't know if Jamie's a man or... Well, it was. That, and the thing about that is not an no, exaggeration. No. This is not, here we stand, we can do no other, we're on the precipice, it's prosperity or death, and we summon a generation and all that shit you hear, it's actually true. No, you know, we always say, uh, this, is, this is, you know, one of the great sins of political writers, before every presidential election... I've ever been uh, involved in, inevitably someone says, this is the most important election of our lifetime. You know, usually it really is not, but this one really is. It really is. And yeah, I, I got to tell you, it's, it's not just, uh, it, you know, I'm, I don't mind criticizing the political press, but the, the politicians do it. Here, we, right. you know, this, this is the most important, right. you know, we're on the press, but what do we, I mean, this, you know, this a little boy that cried wolf. Actually, they is right, wolf right, right, right. here. <laughs> Uh, I mean, this, you know, really does, this really is going to decide what kind of a life your grandchildren have. I mean, that's just, that's not an exaggeration. But anyway, thank you very much uh, for those questions and keep them coming. Thanks for listening to Politics War Room with James Carville. I'm Al Hunt. Don't forget to send your questions for us by email to politicswarroom at gmail.com or tweet them for next week's show at Politicon. Following this episode, we'd appreciate it if you'd check out the links to our sponsors, Henson Shaving and Lomi, in the show notes. We really thank you for supporting them because when you do, you help make this podcast happen. To keep up with us, subscribe to Politics War Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Now, please rate the show with a five-star review. We'll be back next week with another show as we continue our War Room planning.